so my name is Jordan. Welcome to everybody in the building and everybody joining us online. Uh, Maureen mentioned it a little bit when we first started the service today. Um, over the years of Renaissance, over the past seven and a half years, there's been so many things that have happened in our city and nationally that have been grievous. And one of the things that many people love about Renaissance is that we make space for us to feel the weight of all the things that are going on around us. Now, this past Friday, uh, with the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in Washington, uh, a lot of people, myself included, were deeply grieved um, by just the entire scenario. And I'm not shocked as an attorney. Uh, I wasn't necessarily shocked by the outcome. But certainly, I was very grieved. Uh, over the last maybe two years, I've really wanted myself personally and also our community to be able to do more than just lament. Lamenting is a great first practical step to feel the weight of where you are, to not deny or repress any emotions, to bring these complaints and sadness to God in prayer. And that is a, a, a very important first step. And we have made sure that as a community, we have gone through this together. Um, but on Friday, uh, I was sitting and I was praying. And a quote from Arthur Ashe came to, to my mind. And it says, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And on Friday, I determined that the best energy that Jordan has, I want to give that to my wife, to my kids, to this church, to this city, to build something beautiful, something that would be impacting and, and lasting, something that would actually do something for the good of the city. Over the past year, I've worked with a number of churches to start something called Pray March Act. And we have a launch event for it in, uh, on Martin Luther King Day this year in January. And it is uh, Pray March Act PMA is an, a Christian anti-racist organization aimed at uh, really structural change uh, in New York City uh, and certainly uh, nationally as well. And it is a collaboration of a lot of different churches coming together uh, with uh, policy structures and systems in place in our bullseye that through the hard work of, praying, of prayer, of advocacy, and in action, uh, we would see real change. So for today, it's not that my, my energy, it's not that I don't, am not grieved by the, the white supremacy on full display in Washington this week, uh, but more so, more committed to building something for our city, something that would be beneficial. So uh, many of you have gone to the uh, PrayMarchAct.org website to sign up for newsletters and different things, and you're going to be hearing more in the weeks to come about our launch coming up, and a team of people at Renaissance uh, who can be a part of our justice team here. Uh, we have so many people with interest in it, uh, but just know that um, in addition to lament, uh, I believe that there's also a big thing to, to save our energy to work, to do the work, to not be drowned in anything. So let me pray for us, and I'm going to uh, get into the word for today. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am grateful. My heart is full of gratitude for this amazing opportunity to be with your people, your children, over this meal. Lord, I, I pray that this is not McDonald's or anything uh, that is harmful to our bodies in any way. I pray that this is soul-satisfying food, free of contaminants, full of nutrients, and delicious for your people to consume. Lord, may we eat at your table and be full. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so years ago when I was in Baltimore, 
uh, at college in Morgan State, uh, there was an NBA lockout. And I got the chance to play against Muggsy Bogues. Now, for those of you who are not old school NBA fans, my Gen Z people, Muggsy Bogues was one of the shortest people in the history of the NBA. He was five foot three, and it was remarkable just that someone that height would make the NBA. But Muggsy Bogues didn't just make the NBA, he was on the all defensive team, and he really was one of the most important people in the history of the NBA. Uh, last night, actually, on NBA TV, they have a special all about Muggsy Bogues. And, you know, I was 19, 20 years old, and I see this little short dude walk into the gym, and I'm like, oh, this dude plays in the NBA? He about to get this work today. <laughs> the question in my mind was, how much difference could there be between me and an NBA player? A lot, a whole lot, actually. <laughs> Up to that point, I had been playing against my friends and people on my team and people in our conference, and I was pretty confident that I was really good at basketball. That day, Muggsy Bogues disabused me of that lie <laughs> completely. Now, Muggsy Bogues is the strongest human being that I have ever touched. That dude's back was like a turtle shell. I was like, bro, how many pull-ups do you do? His legs were like this wide, all muscle, and some people take offense when you score on them. Oh, I didn't even get close to scoring on Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues took like a personal vendetta if you dribbled the ball near him. <laughs> so for about 10 minutes, this dude pushed me, shoved me around the court, stole the ball from me, and like, after like 10 minutes of playing against him, I would get the ball and just like pass it away as quickly as possible <laughs> to just hopefully get out of um, uh, his way. Uh, what, and what Muggsy Bogues lacked in height, he made up for in aggression, uh, for sure. Now, he terrorized me for that entire game, and I contemplated faking an injury just to get off the court. <laughs> hey, but that day, I got a real comparison. I got a comparison that was a better one for my understanding of the gap between a normal person and an NBA player. So much so, now I will never tolerate those barbershop arguments when someone is saying someone in the NBA stinks or is terrible. I'm like, you have no idea what the worst person in the NBA would do to the best person walking around the street. Now, when I got that real comparison, I saw myself in a better picture, in a better light. Now, I think in general, all of us tend to look at ourselves and to esteem ourselves higher than we ought to. I think we generally think uh, we are a little bit better in life and in different things than we really truly are. We compare ourselves to people right next to us, but if we set the benchmark a little bit higher, if we compared ourselves to something that is truly great, I think we would get a more realistic expectation and a more realistic picture of who we really and truly are and how well we're doing. Now, if I were to ask you all, um, are you a loving person? Most of us, I won't make you raise your hands, most of us would say that we are loving people. We compare ourselves to people who are hateful, and we say, well, compared to that person, I'm loving. Now, today we're going to look at some scripture and a topic in scripture that I think is going to be as earth-shattering for all of us as my interaction was with Muggsy Bogues 20 years ago. When we see the picture of love, God's perfect, enduring, covenantal love in scripture, that we're going to see the gap between us and him. 
We're going to see that our love that we've been peddling out is nothing in comparison. And my hope and my prayer is that we will get a realistic picture of ourselves and what the goal of our life should be. Now, over the past number of weeks in this series on real love, we've talked about different forms of love that, are, that have been explained throughout history. That when we think about are we good at loving people, we think about love in these terms. Uh, the first one we talked about was storge. It's a Greek word, and it basically means affection. Affection is what I felt for my wife the first three weeks we were dating. You know that puppy love where you share each other's french fries and you like, let people take their time. And uh, affection is what, you know, what people feel. And affection is a really good thing. I still feel that for my wife and my kids sometimes. <laughs> um, but in all reality, affection is a beautiful thing. And it is something that should move us and should be a part of good, healthy relationships. But affection is not love. Because affection is not something that can serve as a pillar for our lives. When I say pillar, I mean something that holds you up. Affection is good when you can get it, but there are periods and there will be periods in every single relationship where you do not feel affectionately toward the other person. And then what? Another concept of love we've seen throughout history is something called phileo. And phileo is friendship. Friendship is having mutual interests with someone. And a friendship, as tight as it could be, tends to get weaker and separate when you no longer share the same interests. I remember when I uh, was in college and I first became a Christian, and a lot of the stuff that I had been doing, I'll just say I wasn't doing it anymore. And I remember there was being a distance between me and my friends, not because I loved them less or they loved me less, but because we just were going in different directions, and it caused a distance and a separation in our relationship. Another concept of love that we confuse with real love is eros, which is romance. And just like storge and phileo, which are good things in and of themselves, romance is a good thing but can never be the pillar by which we define love. A lot of times I'll see couples on Instagram, and they're doing these ridiculously cute and overt gestures, a lot of public displays of affection that make me cringe. And um, as happy as I am for them, kind of. Um, that's not real love. A lot of times I know the backstory behind the Instagram posts, and they don't match. What the Bible calls love is agape, and it is rooted in covenant, God's covenant for us. And here's the thing about agape. Agape is not born out of the emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice and here's the kicker, without expecting anything in return. Now today, as, we looking at, as we're going to look at covenant today, uh, it's going to give us a better understanding of what agape truly is. And I have two goals for us today. One is that you would be so confronted and harassed by God's agape love for you in Scripture that it would haunt you in a good way. And number two, that this would be the fuel for the way that you do relationships. Now, today, I want to zoom in on this word that is at the heart of this biblical idea of love and your relationship with God. Everything about your relationship with God hangs on this one word, covenant. You cannot understand God. You cannot understand Jesus, why he has come, or what any of the New Testament means without first understanding this concept of, of covenant. 
God's covenant love is that real love, not the fake stuff. Now, you might have heard of this word before if you've been in church a little bit, uh, but covenant is not a word that we use a lot in society these days. If you've grown up in church and done some theological studies, you might have heard of it, but it's not something that we use all the time. Before we get too far down the road, I want to define it a little bit so that we can all be on the same page. Uh, Covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. It is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. Now, throughout the Bible, God always relates to his people through a covenant. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first pages of Scripture, when God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, he doesn't just say, hi, I'm God. Here are the terms and conditions for your life. God begins a covenant with them. When God brought the children of Israel in Exodus and other books of the Bible out of bondage in Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, he makes a covenant with them. When he approaches a man named Abraham in Scripture, and Abraham is one of the fathers of our faith. Um, All three major religions in the world today, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all trace their origin back to this man named Abraham. And when God came to Abraham and uh, started a relationship with him, he created it based on a covenant. Now, this is not just an Old Testament concept. This is also a New Testament thing, the Scripture that we'll get to later today. When Jesus came... The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus talks about his relationship to his people, not in the sense of um, uh, his hopes for his disciples, but rather that he was establishing a new covenant. At every single point in biblical history, including the present, whenever God relates to people, he relates to us covenantally. Now, imagine if there was someone that you took from a remote village in the Amazon somewhere and you plopped them down in midtown Manhattan or you took them down to Wall Street. Imagine how difficult it would be for them to navigate Wall Street if they didn't understand capitalism. Everything in America, certainly everything on Wall Street, promotes, protects, and revolves around capitalism. And even though people are not walking around with capitalism t-shirts and capitalism hats and saying the word capitalism a lot, it informs everything about our financial and economic structure. And to not understand capitalism would make it impossible to understand and to thrive in New York City. Now, the same thing is true for the concept of covenant. Everything about scripture revolves around God's covenant with his people. And to not understand that, even though it's not listed on every single page, to not understand that means that we miss out on so much of what uh, it means to be in relationship with God. So I actually want to define covenant today not by giving you more definitions. I actually think it would be most helpful to say what it's not. And the biggest thing in our brain that we can understand are our contracts. And essentially, contracts... Um, are not covenants. Covenants are not contracts in a number of very specific ways that I think will help us us illuminate this concept of, of of covenant. So a contract is consumer based, but a covenant is relationship based. Now, a couple years ago, uh, we taught on this concept of covenants and Renaissance has a ridiculously high percentage of lawyers and law students. And there was a law student um, who just finished um, their first year, and 
first-year law students are pretty obnoxious. <laughs> and I know that because I was absolutely obnoxious in my first year in law school. Um, I got, <laughs> this is embarrassing, I, uh, I got my lease from my apartment, and uh, I went to the lease office, and the lady was like, can you sign the lease? And I was like, uh, I have to read this first. I'm in law school. <laughs> and I was reading it, and I was like, well, paragraph six, uh, I don't like the language. I'm just going to initial here that I'm signing this over my objection. And the lady was like, all right, man, like, go ahead, sign. You can color, you can draw a picture. I don't care. Just sign the lease, buddy. Um, so yes, so if you're a first-year law student or something like that, please know that uh, I passed the bar and I know what I'm talking about with contracts. So don't charge me after the service. Uh, but a contract is consumer-based, but a, a covenant, listen, a covenant is relationship-based. Now, this is so important because theologically speaking, what, what motivates a contract are, is a desire to get something out of it. Every single consumer-based decision that is made is a desire to get something out of it for yourself. A contract is entered to get the benefits that each party expects. So all of us in this, uh, in this room and online who are, uh, have landlords, you are in a contractual obligation with your landlord. He or she has expectations, you have expectations. They expect for you to pay the rent, you expect for uh, the, the house to be habitable and able to, to live in and to thrive in. And if either one of you falls below the standard, there is a violation of the contract that would allow you to sever that agreement. So you might have a two-year lease right now, but if you stop paying that rent, you're going to be out on the streets. Because a contract is motivated to get something. It is consumer-based. It can be separated and severed if you fall below the standards of performance. So many people believe that their relationship with God is consumer-based. That if you fall below the standards of what God wants you to do, there's a Ten Commandments, if I miss out on a couple of these, then God is going to sever and end the relationship with me. But a covenant is not based on performance. It is not consumer-based. It is relationship-based. So at the centerpiece of the covenant is not a thing, but a person. You sign a contract expecting something, but you enter into a covenant expecting someone. One of the most common covenants in Scripture is in Exodus 6 and 7, where God says to his people, I will take you as my people. Listen to this. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the forced labor of the Egyptians. Now, in a, con in a covenant... The good of the relationship takes place over the uh, takes precedent over the immediate needs of the individual. Now, one of the funniest things about life and parenting is that most of us see certain relationships not as consumer-based but as uh, covenant-based, and we know this implicitly. Parenting is one of those things that it's not about what you get out of it, but it's your obligation to the other party. Uh, my wife and I are very fortunate. We have two uh, healthy boys, Jameson and Josiah. And my youngest, my sweet, sweet, sweet Josiah. My sweet, sweet boy. He is very sweet. Big, round cheeks that we love to hug and to kiss. But when he's tired, he's toxic. <laughs> when he is tired, he will scratch you. He will throw things. His language has developed to the point to where he can say, he'll say the meanest thing he can think of to you. The other day, I'm not lying, 
This dude was mad and tired and hungry and had my laptop in the air. And I was like rushing to him in slow motion. He waited for me to get close and was just like, he's strong. He was just like, perfect frisbee across the room and threw my laptop uh, across the room. Now, if I were to say, yo, I can't be in a relationship with a toxic kid. <laughs> I got my own apartment. I come by every single day between 4 and 6 p.m. for dinner time, and then I leave. I got to protect my space. I got to protect my peace. You know what I'm saying? Self-care. <laughs> if I were to say, listen, I'm just not getting anything out of this right now, you know? Like, I, I like to sleep more. I like more peace and calm and quiet. Nobody would celebrate that because we understand instinctually that it doesn't matter what you get out of it. If you didn't want kids, you shouldn't have had them. You are obligated to this other person, not because of what they're doing, but because of the nature of the relationship. So many of us miss out on this completely. And if you hear nothing else, hear this. My parental obligation to the sacrificial commitment of Josiah is for his good, not mine. My relationship with Josiah is my sacrificial commitment to him, not what he does for me. Parenthetically, this is why it should calm your heart to pray the Lord's Prayer and to say those words, our Father, not our judge, not our professor, not our boss or employer, our Father. This is why Paul says it um, in, in Romans 8 and 38, that I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says this because he knows God is committed to us covenantally, not contractually. Now, we've been in a series on real love, and we've been having a lot of conversations with people and today, in our culture, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs, only at what is an acceptable cost to us. Whenever we seek to make, cease to make a profit or whenever the relationship requires more of us than we want to give, we peace out. Now, I do want to be very careful and give a caveat up front that our love for people will never be as full and as permanent as God's love and there are reasons that Jesus even outlines in Scripture where we would sever uh, our relationships, even marriage in some limited cases. But that's not a conversation that I think is very easy to have in 30 seconds on the stage. It's something that I think requires your community of faith, your pastors, for us to love and walk alongside you as you make uh, really difficult decisions. But I don't want anybody to hear that just because God's love is perfect and unending, that your relationship with others also has to match suit. On the other end, I do want to warn people against taking a consumer-based approach to your relationships, and particularly the relationship of marriage for everybody who is married or would like to be married one day. I've heard so many different times, well, I, we're just not in love anymore. And what does that mean? That we don't usually have the romance or the, or the affection for each other that we once did? And that's very true in many cases. But romance and affection come, go, and can come again. And I would hate for us to miss out and to be as flippant as society is in our relationships, that we wouldn't model this covenantal love for other people. Now, so number one, covenants are not consumer-based, they are relationship-based. Another uh, difference between covenants and contracts, uh, both of them have obligations, but the obligation of a contract, right, is the fulfillment of terms. 
you have to pay $1,700 a month on the first of the month, every single month for 24, 24 months. But the obligation of a covenant is loyalty. What does this mean for us? It means that God is not interested in you completing a checklist of things. God doesn't want your terms. He wants your loyalty. This is why you see this in the earliest um, interaction with God and people in Scripture. Uh, when Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden, and they ate the fruit that God forbade them to eat. And if you haven't been to church in a long time, hopefully you heard this story, uh, that Adam and Eve were, were situated in the middle of a garden, and God said, you can eat of any fruit of the, uh, of the garden except for this one tree right here. Now, theologians for centuries have gone back and forth to understand what was it about this tree, and it doesn't matter about what the tree was. God was not worried about the specific thing. He was worried about their loyalty and commitment to him. In your life, it is not about simply a specific thing, something God, God warns us against because they are harmful for us, specifically. But in addition to that, and beyond that, the thing, God wants your loyalty, and that is a much bigger thing. When God first uh, knew of the sin that Adam and Eve had committed, Scripture writers said that God went in search of them. Now, why did God go in search of Adam and Eve? It wasn't that God failed to know where they are. God is omniscient. God knows all things. In their, in their sinning, they were near to God, but they were not close to him. Their sin created a separation between God and them. And God felt this violation, this detachment in their loyalty and affection for him. Now, all of us have known this feeling where someone who's close to you does something to you. Um, it could be something simple as they owe you money and they don't pay you back. Um, one of the concepts that we uh, all feel is that in these scenarios, you can be close to someone and yet feel distant from them. What God wants from you is your loyalty because he gives us his loyalty. Now, covenant is nothing like a contract. This means that God doesn't want anything to do with a task list. Task list. And if you are new to church, maybe the enti your entire life you have approached God in a never-ending series of things to do. And I will save you a lot of time in your pursuit. That is going to make you miserable. Because there is never a time when you could not have done a better job. Pick a week in your life. Pick a day. Pick a day when you could not have done a better job. Now, all of us know that we haven't even done one perfect day, let alone a week or a lifetime. And if our love for God, if our relationship with God is based on how well we do terms, we're always going to be miserable. We're always going to be unsettled. We don't know about the unreal uh, and undying love and nature of God, that God is committed to us covenantally. Now, uh, the last thing about covenants are covenants are forever, and the contract is for a specified period of time. This is really important because in the covenant relationship, uh, the other person has made a vow to you. And it is about getting you in return, not getting a thing in return. Now, this is profound for a number of reasons. Um, and I want to take us down a little bit of a, a brief journey through the Old Testament to look at one specific text. And then I'm going to land on Jesus to flesh this out a little bit uh, to give us some really practical stuff on what this means for us and our relationships. But in the Old Testament... There's a story about a man named Abraham in Genesis 15. And uh, God comes to Abraham in a vision. And God goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, bring me uh, a, a goat and a ram and a lamb and a dove and a young pigeon. 
And Abraham lines up all of these animals and he cuts them in half. Now, this is a really peculiar vision that Abraham has. And the scripture says that God passes between these two halves in a blaze of a blazing torch. That this blazing torch represented the presence of God. Now, as bizarre as this sight would have been for Abraham, here's how he would have understand it, understood it. This was God saying to Abraham, if I do not do what I said I was going to do, I'm going to, may I be cut off or cut in two like these animals were cut in two. In other words, God was giving his oath to Abraham saying that I am going to do these things. Now, this is why this scripture is so important, because when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the night before Jesus was to be betrayed and crucified, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he broke it in two. He gave it to his disciples and said, take it and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the transgression, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Jesus took this bread and he broke it, he was doing the same thing that God did and God the Father did in Genesis 15. Jesus was saying that this is the covenant that I have established with you. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how well you're doing today. It's based on my body, which has been broken for you. And in return, this is a relationship-based thing. That instead of just your understanding it or doing a bunch of tasks, Jesus asks for your loyalty in return. And this is not just a one-day thing. This is forever. Relationship-based. Jesus asks for your loyalty, and it is forever. Jesus was the one who was split on two and two on the cross and established this permanent blood-signed covenant. Signed, sealed, and delivered in essence, saying, even though you'll never live up to all that God requires of you, I've been split in two on your behalf. And we come to God, and we are in right standing with God, not based on how well you have done, but based on Jesus and all that he has done for us. When Jesus went to establish a new covenant, he took all of our sins, and we get all of his righteousness. And it is meant to persuade us of God's promises, God's enduring love and covenant for us. God will perform. Now, we talk about the gospel a lot here at Renaissance, and the gospel always begins with God. You are never the person who is the originator or the first person in it. In 1 John, he says, we love because he first loved us. This is love, not that you loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation, to be a, a sacrifice for our sins. Now, a lot of us in any given Sunday might find ourselves drifting Drifting from God, from intimacy and connection with him. Drifting from a real relationship with him. Drifting in the way that God wants us to love other people. And today I just want you to take that as an invitation to come back. Come back closer to him. He has already established a covenant with us. And it's available for everybody who wants to place their faith in Christ. And it's so much better than anything you can have on your own. Now... Some of the real implications that this covenant has for us are that we want this covenant understanding of God and our relationships to also inform and shape the way that you do relationships. Meaning, I do not want Renaissance Church as a whole 
to be shaped by society to say, well, I will engage in something so long as it is beneficial to me. That is not covenant. Now, this is specifically for anybody who is married or wants to be married one day. I want this theology to shape how you view marriage, that a good, healthy, thriving marriage is all about sacrificial commitment to the good of the other, to take yourself off of the throne and to, for two people to have sacrificial commitment to, for the good of the other. I don't care where they're from. I don't care if they have similar interests. If you show me two people who are deeply committed to sacrificial love for the commitment of the other person, I will show you a thriving marriage. But if you take two people self-centered and focused on their own goals and their own life and their own vision and their own passion and their own fulfillment, man, you're just in a re- it's a recipe for chaos. Man, this past week, I mean, I've been so, so, so blessed by these podcasts that Jessica has been doing with different people in our community, and all of them have been so rich and so much to chew on. I've had so many conversations with people where your life and you just feel so seen and invisible and Man, it just highlights your own story so much by these stories that we're, uh, we're telling through members of our community. And uh, I'll never forget this past week, uh, Jermaine and Malika's podcast. And, you know, Jermaine and Malika, I'll forgive y'all for making me cry on 125th Street. Um, Jermaine and Malika's story is, is a really beautiful one. And it's full of struggle and trials. One thing that Jermaine said in the podcast that reminded me of what covenantal love truly is, and if you haven't listened to it, it's in our, it's in our podcast. Uh, this is not a spoiler alert or anything like that, but they've struggled a great deal with infertility in their, in their marriage. And um, because of some health situations that they talk about in, in the podcast, uh, having children is not, having natural born children will never be an option for them. In the podcast, Jermaine was talking about his relationship with Malika, and he was saying, There's this thing that he's wanted his whole life. His whole life he's wanted to be a a, a natural born father, that he's wanted to have a child, and he's not gonna have that. But he is committed to Malika, despite what she can do for him, even being his greatest dream in life to be a father. Covenantal love is not flimsy. It's not if you don't give me the thing that I want or else I'm splitting or I'll treat you less. It is through all of the heartache and through all of the disappointment in life, I'm with you. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of what life and covenantal relationships should look like. That when God sees us, whether or not we can give God all the perfection of our lives or not, God still wants us. You know, we have baptism classes at Renaissance, and so many times people are saying, like, I don't know if I'm ready to get baptized, or I don't know if I'm ready for this, that, or the third. And ultimately, what they are misunderstanding is the nature of a covenant. They're misunderstanding that God, in his infinite love and power, he came down. He put on skin, and he went to the cross to make up for all of our sins. And though we would never live up to the standard that God calls us to live to, God is committed to us. Not because of us, but because of him. And that love that God gives us should push us, should fling us towards radical loyalty towards him. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, 
I am grateful for your people. I'm grateful to be here today to experience your word and scripture. Lord, I'm grateful to be reminded of your covenantal love for me. I pray that, Lord, you would make this concept so clear in our hearts and that we would grow from it, and that it would inform the way we do relationships. I pray this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.